0: This is Bridget Osborne, editor of the Chiswick Calendar. My guest is Tim Richardson, garden writer, garden historian. Thank you very much, Tim, for joining the Chiswick Book Festival 2020.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You've written the most beautiful book about Sissinghurst, Sissinghurst the Dream Garden. Why it's the dream garden, we'll come on to in a minute. But first of all, I think I probably should tell you I've got a confession to make. I have never been to Sissinghurst. It is on my list but I actually have never been there. So I'm actually quite glad now that I haven't, because when I go there for the first time, I will see it with the insight from your book, and I'll see it in a totally different way. It was the garden designed by Vita Sackville-West and Harold Nicholson. And understanding them is the key to understanding the gardens, isn't it? So tell us about them.
1: Yes, um, I mean it's a bit of a cult I suppose Sissinghurst and it's a much poured over garden if you like, both P-O-R-E and um, P-A-W-E-D Sissinghurst and part of that is because of the character particularly of Victoria Sackville West known as Vita Sackville West who was as well as being a famous gardener really thought of herself more as a writer and a poet, that was really what she felt was her vocation
0: well with some justification she published many books of poetry she was very and successful literature.
1: in her time um, I think posterity literary posterity judges her less kindly than her contemporaries did which is perhaps the best way round <laughs> to be successful actually when you're alive but um, I'm not sure that many of her books and poems stand up particularly well now although perhaps ironically I I've gone through them all again and and uh, in the book quoted a great deal of of that material
0: and the the snippets that you use yep. are beautiful and oh. you use them in a very opposite way they absolutely back up what you're talking about in the book but she was part of the Bloomsbury group wasn't she she was well I don't um... know
1: Bridget she was a satellite I, I, I okay I, she was never really part of it she she was too snobbish she thought, really, she was above it, you know. She she, well, she was an aristocrat, class. was she not? She was an aristocrat. She had an affair with Vita. So the other thing about them is uh, probably everyone knows, but, of course, they had this interesting marriage, a sort of open marriage. They were both essentially uh, gay. Um, I don't think either of them were particularly even bisexual, although they did have two children, but that was not uncommon for the period. And Vita had numerous affairs, with women across her life but with a few very very important ones including um, a, an affair with Virginia Woolf which I've really tried to integrate into the book and explain how really literary theory has uh, impacted upon the garden. But
0: it's it's rather lovely isn't it because you know they, they weren't just living together for convenience they they loved each other uh, tell us about um, Harold, Harold Nicholson.
1: Yeah, um, they did. They did love each other and they were, they were sort of, in a way, they were passionately in love with each other, though without much kissing or any of that malarkey going on. I mean, Harold remarked once in a letter that their entire courtship before their marriage had been conducted without a single kiss. But that doesn't mean to say it wasn't a love affair, of course. So they were, they were deeply in love and really, I think, looked upon the garden as their joint endeavour and as the true expression, an authentic expression of their marriage. I mean, sadly, in a way, the two two children, Ben and Nigel, the boys they had, were actually not really an authentic expression of their marriage in in some ways. And I think they were kind of dimly aware of that. But Harold, I'm glad you ask about him because Vita's personality is so electrifying and exciting She was incredible with her jodhpurs and her silk blouse and her cigarette holder, striding around the place, followed by dogs, sort of probably flirting with every attractive uh, woman who ever crossed the threshold of Sissinghurst.
0: She she didn't do um, consecutive relationships, did she? (laughs) Didn't bother with any of that.
1: (laughs) No, it wasn't so much a case of love triangles with her as love dodecahedrons. I mean, she, (laughs) she had a lot going on. In fact, Virginia Woolf found that very difficult to cope with she she sort of really was a much more of a mon- monogamous sort of person and she, and vita did sort of slightly wreak havoc to be honest and and harold was also i mean despite the openness of their marriage he was never jealous but he did upbraid her on several occasions for the for the havoc that she left because people would fall in love with her and i'm not sure she was ever really particularly lovey-dovey vita she was a very physical kind of a person. And so in a sense, you know, she was sort of um, having these serial uh, love affairs really for her own enjoyment. And Harold, well, let's not dwell too much on all, all of their kind of tribal... Private...
0: Well, I was going to say, like, let, let's move on to how yes. um, how the gardens reflect who they were, because that's the important thing
1: really, isn't it? It, it is, um... yes. And, and there's this prurient... Um, I fear I may have just stepped into it with all of that. But, you know, there is this sort of prurient interest in their love life, which in a way I think is a culture we've kind of grown out of, surely, you know, now. And particularly these the excitement around their sexual orientation. So, yes, I mean... Except that, that
0: in a way they're role models and in a way that this is a place of, not not pilgrimage, but, you know, it's... that They lived a happy life in a way that they ought to have been able to live without it being particularly remarkable. And in a way, they chime with the times now much more than they did then. But this was their sort of secret world where they could go to relax, not secret, but they they could go to relax. It was unconventional. Tell me about how their personalities and their relationship played out in the way the garden was designed.
1: Well, yes, it was an intensely private world. That's the thing about Sissinghurst. That's what I meant, private, not secret. And I think people still have that sense when they go to it as a visitor, that's fine. You're used to going to places, even friends' houses or something, that's their private world, so that's fine. But it does make it more difficult for the family members, I think, uh, paradoxically, who've inherited, if you like, although it's National Trust now, but the family is still interested. Really, Vita and Harold made Sissinghurst as their own little private retreat against the world, where they could truly be themselves. I mean, Vita could you know, get muddy and do a lot of kind of uh, manual work and, and do her Literary work and a lot of things which at that time were associated with a more of a male way of being. And um, Harold could escape his obligations as a diplomat and later as a politician and, yeah, really pursue their literary interests half of the time, I suppose, and their gardening interests the other half of the time. They weren't very social, you see, at Sissinghurst. They didn't have any guest accommodation there. But the the physical makeup of Sissinghurst, which if anyone listening hasn't been there, is quite remarkable. It's a it's really a ruined medieval castle, with a wonderful romantic tower, turreted tower in the middle of it, of course, which is where Vita had her study and wrote from. And then arranged around it is a one surviving range, and then a few little cottages, which are like bits of this um really tudor palace almost, which was built and then was broken down in the eighteenth century. So there wasn't really a house at Sissinghurst when they bought. it. was
0: interesting to me, you, you, you wrote that when they moved in, they discovered it in 1930, and when they moved in, their boys were teenagers, and essentially they all lived in different buildings.
1: Yes, that was part of the plan. It sort of suited them. So uh, it certainly suited Vita and uh, Harold, and I think the boys, yes, who I think were 15 and 17. And, of course, they were away at school at Eton, and so they weren't there all the time. But, um, you know, they had their own quarters. So everyone had their own basically kind of bedroom and living area. And then in the evenings, they met up in one of the houses in the priest's cottage or house where the kitchen was. And so they, they had their, their evenings together. And then they had to walk out again into the cold, if it was winter, back to their, <laughs> their sleeping quarters. So they had this rather kind of uh, fragmentary version, if you like, of a domestic setup, which peculiarly you know, was apt, I suppose, to the unconventional nature of the family.
0: But in terms of the garden, it emphasises the idea that the different parts of the garden are like rooms.
1: Yes, I suppose the room idea is inescapable at Sissinghurst. It's, if you like, the great cliché of Sissinghurst and really of 20th century garden design generally. Sissinghurst was certainly not innovative in uh, having this notion, this structure, based on the idea of cellular compartments or rooms. This was a pretty standard practice, certainly in the arts and crafts gardens from the 1890s on. And also, in fact, in Victorian gardens, there were plenty of gardens of rooms made then. But What was interesting, actually, I think, about Sissinghurst was the way that Harold in particular messed around, frankly, with the pieties of professional design work. Because Sissinghurst on plan, if you look at it from a design perspective, is a total disaster. You can't imagine that this garden would ever actually work. The lines are going off all over the place. The axes don't line up. Everything's a bit skew-whiff. The different-sized spaces, the spaces that there are there, are odd shapes. And a lot of this was the result of Harold, in particular, because he was working out these spaces, having to deal with the existing walls, the remaining walls of the garden of that of the castle which they didn't want to take down, and he was forever coming up against these problems where the plans he had were stymied. And so he had to create a sort of a sense of a structure and enclosure within that. The thing about Sissinghurst, which is extraordinary, is that despite the fact it looks like chaos on plan, on the ground it works supremely well, as anyone who's been there knows. It's as if you're being sort of gently nudged around the garden, as if you're in conversation still with Vita and Harold sometimes, um, because each of the... of the of the areas flows so beautifully and intimately into each other and the vistas open up so cleverly that it doesn't matter that it doesn't work on plan it was worked out intuitively and spontaneously by someone with an innate sense of space and scale so it had been a medieval castle it had fallen into disrepair and
0: been used to house french prisoners uh it had ended up as a rural workhouse in victorian times it's surrounded by a moat in the middle of the Kent countryside. So, what kind of state was it in when they found it?
1: Well, I, I think the estate agent's particulars described it as something like gardens set in picturesque ruins. You know, it, it had been on the market <laughs> when they saw it in nineteen thirty for several years already. I mean, it wasn't even a castle, really. It was never actually a medieval castle. It was a medieval house, a big uh, old old um, you know house based on a on a big hall. Building, which is now gone, in the eighteenth century it was occupied by French prisoners during the Seven Years' War, and it was them who dubbed it the Chateau as a joke, because it was such a hole, and the name Sissinghurst Castle actually stuck as a result of that. But basically it was completely falling down when they got to it. I mean, it had been a workhouse, as you say, and then it had been farmed, and quite successfully farmed, but there had been agricultural depression in the 20s and the years Up to the point they saw it, and it was just lying abandoned, really. And the rather grand spaces were filled with like chicken wire and nettles and weird little houses tacked on to the old castle.
0: They couldn't really afford this, could they? Well, Harold was always worrying about how much money they were spending on it.
1: Yeah, well, they could just about afford it. I mean, when they moved in, they they obviously had the cash to buy it, but they never had a lot of money. Um, Harold was actually unemployed when they moved in his really political career had had failed at that point he decided to stop being a being a politician be a, be a politician at that point um and a diplomat and so on and um he was yeah they, they their prospects were not looking too good so in a sense it was an intensely kind of romantic and brave thing to do but vita was desperate to own sissinghurst because of her own uh, upbringing um, as a sign of the Sackville family, she was born at Knoll in Kent, which is another National Trust property, famous, massive house, incredibly impressive. But because of primogeniture, in other words, Vita, as a woman, was not permitted to inherit. She didn't. It was um, her cousin who inherited. In fact, uh, Sissinghurst. I think I'm right in saying that, um, or was it her? You know, it was her younger brother inherited. That's it, and it later went into another part of the family. Anyway, but so, so Vita really never got over that for her entire life because she was obsessed with Noel. She was essentially brought up there on her own, mainly by her grandfather. And um, it's an absolutely extraordinary, beautiful house. And I think that she tried, in a way, at Sissinghurst. I mean, this is not a particularly original observation. It's just something that she noted herself. At Sissinghurst, she almost tried to make a version of Noel in garden form. Um, so that's where this idea of rooms comes in a little bit, the idea that you go from a themed area to another themed area, which, of course, you have in these great houses.
0: Hmm. Your background, as well as knowing about the history of gardens and writing about the history of gardens, you, you also know a fair amount about literature. And your original contribution in this book, if you like, is that you're explaining how... Um, the Gardens also reflect the intellectual and cultural context of the time,
1: yes, well, thank you for for noticing that bridget <laughs> It's very <laughs> gratifying because that was the that was the idea I mean there is a huge amount of horticultural information in there as well, which people want and in, for example i've got a plan of the rose garden where i've put I was in going to come on to that actually rose. yeah but just so people don't get frightened that this is just some uh, some guy just going on and on about literary matters but it is very very important it's one chapter one chapter <laughs> well it does sort of weave itself through but i the, i'm a, I, i'm very interested in planting as well so that's all in there and in the introduction i say i make no apologies for like oscillating wildly between very detailed horticultural observations and these reflections on vita and harold's intellectual and literary makeup and the reason i make no apology is because for them that oscillation was part of their daily life vita gardened in the morning and then she went up into her study in the tower and wrote in the afternoon and she wrote poems where literally she intertwined these two ideas um so um that to me it seems to be almost strange that people have not before now i think enough tried to relate vita's Literary ideas and ambitions with what she was up to in the garden.
0: You relate it in in the book to um, what was then new at the time, writing as a stream of consciousness. So you walk around the gardens and you're following sort of their stream of thought about how it develops from one part of the garden to the next. Yes, and you liken it to Virginia Woolf's writing.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So Vita and Harold were were very interested in stream of consciousness, and they both actually wrote in that vein uh, at that time. Um, and Vita's her affair with Virginia Woolf occurred around the time Virginia Woolf was writing *Mrs Dalloway*, and their affair continued during the period she produced *The Waves* and *To the Lighthouse*, and these great novels of the twentieth century, where this incredibly innovative way of writing of stream of consciousness, where you seem to enter into the mind of the narrator. Um, and and creating books, famously in the case of Mrs Dalloway, occurring over the course of one day. And Vita actually did write a novel in a stream of consciousness vein. It's a, it's a, it's it's called Seducers in Ecuador. And really, no one has ever really mentions this anymore. But in fact, at the time, it did rather better than Mrs Dalloway did. It came out at the same time and it sold a lot better. Although it is certainly isn't as good a, a book. But Virginia was was very keen on these modern modernist ideas. And the fact is, is I think that gardens in general, and, and Sissinghurst is included, tend to be, if you like, relegated or condescended to by people who are interested in other things, like literature perhaps, and not so interested in gardens, who think, seem to believe that a garden cannot possibly have any intellectual content, that it just has Ooh. to be an escape. as a beautiful place where you sort of smell the roses and sort of forget. But Sissinghurst wasn't like that at all. It was a very, very intensely wrought uh, place, Um uh, it was a sort of gesamtkunstwerk work, that German word meaning a total work of art, where Vita really um, in, incorporated all these sorts of ideas, including stream of consciousness, and also these ideas which were abroad at that time in modernism. I'm trying to emplace Sissinghurst as a modernist garden, as a modernist work of art, and as part of that tradition, not as part of some throwback, neo-romantic Georgian-type garden, because her own work and interest weren't there she was torn really between those two things she wrote in both veins but i think in the garden given its fragmentation and the hybridity within there and the many different kind of voices that you experience in it i've quoted the wasteland in this book as you know there are not many books <laughs> where t.s Eliot's the wasteland is quoted but um garden books i mean but i think it's relevant because I think that um, Virginia will, uh, Vita, who really admired uh, Tom Elliott as she knew him, was really trying to do something similar in the garden. Well, let's, as you say, move on to the plants, because you can pick up
0: this book. It's the most beautiful, heavy coffee table book. And you can leaf through and just enjoy the photographs. Beautiful photographs by Jason Ingram uh, of these huge you know banks riots of flowers and colors vita was known for cramming plants in wasn't she there's there's hardly a a space anywhere in these borders um and you go each chapter is about a different part of the book so let's start with with the rose garden i mean you have actually named every type of rose that's in there and plotted them so you could use this as a planting guide and replicate the rose garden couldn't you
1: you, you could do that or, or just, I mean, I've described all the roses and quoted a lot of Vita's own comments about certain roses because she loved some and her way of describing them was so beautiful. And... Um yeah, so you could make an old rose garden based on that. And equally, you could use it to actually just walk around the rose garden at Sissinghurst and know what you're looking at, because the roses don't have tags on them. It's not that sort of a garden.
0: But they are old roses, not vulgar hybrid <laughs> roses.
1: Yes, in the main, they are. There was this little cult, I suppose, around the time, in the particularly in the 1930s onwards, and then it really picked up again post-war where a certain small number of what you might call rose connoisseurs began really rescuing what are known as old-fashioned roses, which are shrub roses, um, from the gardens of, uh, in England and also in France and northern Belgium.
0: Damasks, for example? Yes,
1: damask roses, um, wonderful things like Madame Alfred Carrière. A lot of them have have French names. I mean, there's lots of different types of roses. I mean, the trouble with the the shrub rose from a horticultural perspective and why they had fallen from favour, in favour of more modern rose varieties, is that they are supposedly prone to disease, but more I don't know about that. I've got them quite happy in my garden for many years without any pesticides. But mainly it is that they only have one flush of flowering. So you really have this moment in usually June when, when the flowers come out and then they die and then they don't come back again.
0: But Vita didn't seem to care about that, did she? She'd go for a show of colour and she wasn't really bothered what happened the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it, she wanted a what she called is a floraison this rather fancy Vita word for the for this sort of thing it wasn't it was a show of many colors you know many many different roses all as you say rather crammed together in this incredibly romantic hedonistic sensual way where the all the other plants are really put into the rose garden in particular just as just to prop up and to complement the roses themselves which are absolutely the the point really, of a lot of Sissinghurst, to be honest. And as you say, yeah, Vita Ro- just didn't really care. The fact that, as she put it, you had blanks later on. It's much better to have one wonderful moment. This will seem extraordinary to some gardeners out there, but Vita didn't really like going into the garden in July. I mean, a lot of gardeners don't like going to the garden in August because it's a bit, you know, a bit desiccated. But for her, she didn't like it. Even when the roses were in full flower, she didn't like them in full flower. She liked them in early flower. <laughs> that's connoisseurial isn't it <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes that's one way of putting it she went for blocks of colour didn't she, she she'd have an area that was all purple or all white well
1: yes not so much with the roses but with other plants yes I mean she had borders she had the purple border for example in the top courtyard which is a colour themed border and of needless to hardly need to say the white garden the most famous colour themed garden in the world really and possibly the most famous garden in the world so, yes, that was a trend. Again, it wasn't something that was original to her. It was a trend that she really picked up upon. Uh, Gertrude Jekyll, for example, had, had made a number of such gardens. So she had a mixture in, in Sissinghurst of, of a jumble of all sorts of different colours in some places, and then and in some places yeah these they're called single color gardens but of course they're never single color they've got even within purple or within white you have so many different shades and colors within the petals and green is the supporting color and brown and gray all around and the brick of the red brick of course it's always technicolor really
0: and she has a, a cottage garden But again, she doesn't stick to the rules. She goes for hot reds and oranges, not pinks and greys, or not pinks and greys exclusively.
1: Yes, it's the one place in the garden where she really went to town with these very exotic zingy colours, the oranges and the yellows and so on, which she didn't really like very much elsewhere. She did use yellow, but sparingly, and as a foil to other colours. But in the cottage garden, so her and Harold lived in this little, it is literally like a little cottage, plonked apparently in the middle of the garden. It isn't quite... Uh, everything at Sissinghurst is not quite, you see, which is uh, is one of its strengths. Um, and, um, yes, yeah, so that, that was their own little private garden, if you like. Again, structured, very strong structure with a path system and these uh, quartet of Irish yews in the middle and an urn at the centre of it. So there's always structure within the kind of chaos, the amiable chaos which she created. There was always an underpinning of structure to give it a sense of order and that was always very important to them.
0: And structure was Howard's department, was it?
1: Yes, it, it was. It was. They both had views on each other's departments, if you like, and they both respected each other's opinions. Um, but yes, Harold had got particularly engaged in that. Harold was a descendant of uh, Robert Adam, rather distantly, I think, the architect. So I think he p- p- had this belief that somehow genetically he was capable of designing and, and he was <laughs> actually so it was sort of true but uh yes that was it was more harold's apart but they did used to have some terrible fights uh vita and harold over this because vita was always wanting to cram in more plants everywhere and more color everywhere and harold was more had more of an eye to the atmosphere of the garden and how it might look in winter for example which vita didn't sort of care about as much
0: there's a lovely photograph of the two of them together actually and she's in her gardening gear and actually you quote her writing about the liberation she felt when she put on this gardening gear for the first time.
1: Yes, yes, she, 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 she related that in her, in her journal which was later published as Portrait of a Marriage. It was a secret journal she wrote about her first real love affair with Violet Trefusis who was also married at the time although they'd known each other since they were teenagers.
0: Wasn't there some dramatic tale about their husbands flying off to France to get them back?
1: Yes. Well, Vita eloped. Vita and Violet eventually eloped together. I know it is funny, but it must have been terribly traumatic for everyone, really. And they went to France where uh, Vita was, who was the sort of more uh, kind of, I don't know, I don't want to fall into any traps here, but she was sort of more manly of the pair, if you like. Um And she was disguised as a boy or as a young man in this period. And they were basically in this guest house as a sort of Mr. and Mrs. And they had had a lovely time doing that in northern France. But then Harold and um, Violet's husband, they flew over in this two-seater light aircraft. Sort of like a comical caper, really, to kind of bring them back. But uh, it, it, like so many things to do with Vita and Harold, it wasn't all that simple. I mean, obviously, Harold well, I can't imagine her being
0: brought back if she didn't want
1: to. Exactly, and also Harold was aware that this was a real thing—that the love affair—and he was aware of their natures. You know what they, who they were. So uh, the irony, if you like, about Sissinghurst, as you've alluded to it a few times, is this notion that. It's correct in a way that Harold, yes he laid out the bones of the garden and did the structure and yes it's correct that Vita did the soft flowery stuff and as a result I think Sissinghurst and gardening generally has been gender stereotyped if you like so that sort of men if you like are supposed to be better at that stuff and women are better Which at Which is the slightly
0: other ironic given the two people we're talking about.
1: Indeed, indeed and I mean this has occurred to me for many years and I've been I remember sort of saying this almost to gasps from the audience if we're saying this in the 1990s of course things have changed now and we have a very different attitude really thank goodness it's much more interesting as a result to all of this so you don't have to sort of halt at it but um yes I mean that, that that idea is still out there though and Sissinghurst is still held up as this sort of notion I think their partnership their gardening partnership was much deeper and more subtle than that were that sort of indicates that idea that he did the hard structure and she did the soft planting. In reality, the garden was made, like many gardens made by couples of all kinds are, as a, as a, as a joint effort and as a reflection of their own individual personalities and almost as an expression of love, potentially.
0: He did have his own areas, though. He had his um, his lime walk,
1: yes. his spring garden. Thank you, Bridget, for reading this book so attentively. <laughs>
0: it's a lovely book well uh, it's very good
1: it's very nice to to have somebody who's really read it carefully but yes you're quite right so the Lime Walk was this it does look a bit different really to other bits of Sissinghurst although all of Sissinghurst there are so many surprises in it it's a very disorientating place to go to which is one of its strengths again it's a strength not a weakness but the lime walk is this formal walk of pollarded lime. So that's those limes done in the French way where they're not that tall and then they're kind of cut at the top so they look like little lollipops and then they're all joined up together to make a kind of a a green walkway. And underneath it he planted, it was known in his time as the spring garden because of all these spring flowers planted underneath it. And Vita had nothing to do with that. In fact, sort of comically really, <laughs> harold had his own gardener for that one bit of the garden who came one day a week and harold and this bloke for years gardened that and they never touched the other parts of the garden really so actually anyone listening to this who's in a sort of gardening couple will, will recognize this can be quite a good way of doing a garden it is very much a physical division of labor in terms of the bits of the garden each of you do as well as anything else so yeah in that sense they were they, they were you know following the uh, the norm. I suppose it's just it was so much more intense with them what they were trying to do. They had a certain rows about such she really put her foot down, but only about a few things, like he hated, for example, Harold hated rhododendrons and azaleas and also red hot pokers, nephophias, basically the both of them were terrific snobs, of course, and they thought of these as really common plants or what they call suburban plants. And Harold, in particular, disliked them. I mean, Vita quite liked things to be common in inverted commas, or their own word for this was bedint. You know, that's how they described, like, that was like a family code word for... And I, I, I don't know what that, that means. Code word. It means middle class or lower class, not upper oh. middle. Anything <laughs> lower than upper middle class. So
0: Never heard that word. No,
1: well, we, well you're, perhaps you're like me, because I hadn't heard of it, you see. But this is a code that is not actually unique to the Nicholson's. So if ever we go to somebody's house and somebody we overhear our hostess say to her husband, a little bit bed-int, we know that we're being talked about.
0: <laughs> Jolly good. Um, one one part of the garden was a disaster, you say. Delos. What with Delos? What was Delos meant to be and why was it a disaster?
1: Yes, well Delos is this curious bit of the garden, it's always been a problem. So Delos is an island, a Greek island, and Vita and Harold always travelled all over the place, with Harold being a diplomat, so they went to the Middle East in particular, so a lot of the garden has Middle Eastern echoes. And I should say that Vita's grandmother was what's, was always described as a Spanish gypsy, uh, but she was a very glamorous sort of flamenco dancer. So Vita herself was not, if you like, fully English and was always aware of that. So the garden, one of its hybrid disorientating things, is it's not just an English garden. It's not a classic English garden. It's filled, obviously, with plants from all over the world and deliberate attempts to make it seem exotic. And the Delos was another one of these. This was much more Harold's thing because, obviously, being a gay man... Uh, public school educated at the time he was the Greeks the ancient Greeks you know, were held up that was a, that was very much um, an ideal I suppose an ideal of of civilized uh, life and and a certain permissiveness if you like which wasn't abroad in Edwardian England uh, towards relationships between men so uh, Harold was always had a romantic link with with Greece. And so they went on holiday and they saw all the wonderful plants in Greece and and, lot, and lots of tumble down farmhouses and decided to try to make a kind of version of it in Sissinghurst. So sort of ruins of old farmhouses and rocks and then, you know, plants like Arbutus and Euphorbias and all of the what you might call kind of mackey kind of planting. It's really what we call drought planting today at Sissinghurst. The problem is is they really as with all gardens, even one's professionals design, really hard gardening and you don't always make the right decisions and they made a really bad decision as, as to where to put this particular garden because it ne- the plants never thrived there and it never really worked this rocky greek landscape and it gradually devolved down into being a lawn of all things and was a, a it's right next door to the white garden and was almost sort of an embarrassment for the garden for many years and i'm pleased that in this book it's i was able right at the death at the very end just before it went to press The photographer Jason went back again and got some photos of the restored Delos, because it's been restored with the help of Dan Pearson, the garden designer.
0: Tell us about the restoration, because Vita died in 1962 and Harold in 1968, and their sons didn't want to take over the running of the garden, so it went to the National Trust. But they made it more formal for many years, and now they're coming back to the idea of trying to make it more like her original intention.
1: Yeah, something like that. In fact it it went to the National Trust before Harold's death a couple of years before and he was living there in a sort of custodian way. And the family, the Nicholson family, have the right still to live in the part of the of the entrance range of Sissinghurst and they they have lived there. Adam Nicholson and Sarah Raven have lived there on a permanent basis in the past. But yes, I mean the thing is I've been a little critical in the in the book. Um of the National Trust's tenure, particularly the early days. I mean, of course, they rescued the garden; they saved it from dereliction. That needs to be said at the outset. With the National Trust, without the National Trust, who knows what would have happened? So the National Trust was heroic in that sense to take it on, and the people who made the decision. The trouble is, is really towards the end of her life, particularly. Well, Vita had taken on the two the two uh, female head gardeners who went on to stay there for a long time. But the gardener she had, it was incredibly uh, ramshackle and romantic and a little bit all over the place. It was not a prime example of horticulture, if you like. It was a great garden, but it was not something that a professional horticulturist would want to put their name to. So when the Gardens advisor of the National Trust, the great Graham Stuart Thomas, who had been one of Vita's rose confederates, those old rose connoisseurs I mentioned, and wrote the classic book on old roses actually at the time. But he took it over. But Graham Thomas was a great stickler horti- and a v- very high horticultural standards, as were the two head gardeners. And they really, in their eyes, improved the garden and made it much um, better, um, increasing the plant stock, you know, dealing with the pruning in a different way. But over the years, as a result, my feeling, and certainly the feeling of others I know, was that the garden lost some of its magic which was really bound up in that sense of uh, confusion and disorientation and just the slight untidiness really which vita explicitly wrote about in her time that she wanted she wanted her last article a newspaper article she wrote about a year before she died was called my roses thrive on a touch of neglect and she lectured the royal horticultural society members and, and enjoined them really to do less in their garden so the irony, I think, with Sissinghurst was that it was actually gardened too well for a number of years. That changed in about about a decade ago now, or less really, when Troy Scott Smith came into the garden and with the mission as he put it to put the softness back, some of the softness back. And Troy really understood the problems of Sissinghurst. He'd worked at the garden as an undergardener before anyway, earlier in his career. And I think this book, in a way, is a testament, and certainly the photographs are, to his way of gardening, which I think was much more in line with Vita's way. And the new head gardener, Michelle Kane, is, I know, uh, continuing with this. Um, I haven't been to Sissinghurst this summer, but um, those that have tell me that uh, the garden is looking nicely uh, unburdened, shall we say. You know, it's sort of letting its hair down a little bit more. So, you know, that, that, that was what I was always certainly arguing for from within the trust. And I was very pleased when that started to happen.
0: Well, when I go, I will bear in mind all that you've said and I will see it for the first time with this wealth of knowledge about the place and I appreciate it so much the better for it. So, Tim Richardson, thank you very much indeed for joining us for the Chiswick Book Festival.
1: Thanks for having me.